Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Caitlin Killian to discuss her new book, Failing Moms, Social Condemnation and Criminalization of Mothers, published by Polity Press in 2023. The role of the mother is often celebrated in the United States as the most important job in the world. But Dr. Killian argues that American motherhood is increasingly monitored and perilous. From preconception through pregnancy and while parenting, she argues that women are held to ever higher standards and punished, both socially and criminally, for failing to live up to these norms. Using historical accounts, public health pronouncements, social psychological research, and course cases, Failing Moms documents how women of all ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses have been interrogated, held against their will, and jailed for a rapidly expanding list of offenses, such as falling down the stairs while pregnant or letting a child spend time alone in a park, actions that were not considered criminal a generation ago. While poor mothers and moms of color are targeted the most, Dr. Killian argues that all moms are in jeopardy, whether they realize it or not. Women and mothers are disproportionately held accountable compared to men and fathers who do not see their reproduction policed and almost never incur charges for failure to protect. The gendered inequality of prosecutions reveals them to be more about controlling women than protecting children. Other books have examined the specific risks to either pregnant or parenting women, but few connect the issues, and that is Dr. Killian's goal. Using a reproductive justice lens, she analyzes the extent of the crisis and what must change to prevent mass penalization and provide resources to allow people to mother well. Dr. Caitlin Killian is a professor of sociology at Drew University, specializing in gender, families, reproduction, and immigration. She's worked as a consultant for the United Nations, developing the module on sexual and reproductive health and rights for the UN staff training and co-authoring a UNDP report on Syrian refugee women. Her articles have appeared in Context Magazine and The Conversation, and she's published in numerous academic journals about adoption, overblown warnings about women's alcohol consumption during pregnancy, sexual and reproductive health and justice, and immigrant and refugee women. I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books uh, Podcast and the New Books Network. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I loved the book, and this is an all-Jersey podcast. I think that's not uh, happened once before with a Princeton writer. So here we are um, uh, in different counties. Let's start by just talking about how did you decide to write this book and how did it build on or depart from, you know, other research that you've done during your career? I am so glad you asked me that question because this book really was um, 
a labor, and I use that word intentionally. Many people talk about birthing a book, but as it's on mothers, it really was sort of a a labor of love, although that's odd to say because it's such a distressing, everything I'm writing about is so distressing. Um, But as both a mother myself um, and then teaching for years, teaching courses like sociology of families and sociology of reproduction, where I've been in the literature and for years had conversations with students about things like drug prosecutions during pregnancy. Um, what do they really accomplish? Why are people even doing that? Um, but as I, I thought about my own experiences and other people's experiences being mothers, Um, And then just seeing also um, things in the news. Um, And of course, I started writing this book before um, Dobbs and Roe v. Wade fell. I had already started it, but it was exactly the kind of thing I wasn't surprised by, given everything that I was pulling together to bring into this book about how things are getting harder for mothers. um, But also, where is that coming from? That it's it's often under the guise of protecting children, but it's really not. It's it's about going after mothers and, by extension, women. No, you make it very clear. This is about women's autonomy and controlling. And I knew you had to have written this book, the, the meat of the book, before Dobbs <laughs> and the end of Roe. However, the whole book reads as it is the, the prelude to that because that's not the cause. It's an effect of right. the of, of well that you're talking about. And I will say that, you know, this is a hard book to read. I, I knew that as soon as I read the first few pages, but uh, it is also a book in which you offer some uh, hope for change and ways in which things could change. So it's, it's a book that's balanced in that way, that it's not sugar-coated, but also you are providing ways that there are there are alternative ways, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, let me ask you one vocabulary question just before we start, which is that you know this this word mother has always been multi layered, and in, and in writing about mothering, you really face challenges of vocabulary, especially you know in in twenty twenty three, and you you decide to follow past usage of this word mom despite recognizing that it could be problematic, you know, given that gender is a construction and and biological sex Mm -hmm. is also something that is socially agreed upon. So just explain a little bit about that decision for the the book and the kind of um, thinking that you did about it. Sure. Yes, I did. Because it's a loaded word. People, um, as you said, in 2023, we have to think about things like trans men who give birth, for example, and do they find themselves in this word or would they not find themselves in this word? And so it was problematic. um, But I decided to stick with moms and mothers intentionally because most of society's thinking, and even when we get to court cases and look at previous writings or what's in the news, they're still using mom and mother a particular way. And so it helps match that. And and also because part of my book is comparing how fathers, dads, are treated or not, right? What's left out? What are they not subjected to compared to moms and mothers? So I had to have some of that 
binary, even though I recognize that it's deeply problematic and that we are moving to a place where more and more people are questioning and asking about the social construction of gender um, and, and not wanting to fit themselves in a binary or knowing others who are more gender fluid. Um, so it, I absolutely agree it's problematic, but in the end, to, to match the literature and the sources I was using, I decided I, I couldn't really go there. I just wanted to keep the argument clear. <laughs> I really find in reading the number of books that I read for the podcast, uh, I really appreciate the way authors come forward with these vocabulary choices early in their books. Because then as you read the rest of the book, you're you're more sensitive to uh, for what is happening. For example, you talk a lot about interdisciplinary uh, inter, bleh, interdisciplinarity uh, early in the book, and then it's woven throughout. Similarly, you you at the offset say like, this is not exactly going to work for trans men, for all pregnant people, but throughout the book, you come back to it. So this isn't a book in which you sort of like, it's a footnote. It's it's seriously considered and you really are thinking about people in all of their different um, uh, identities. But, okay, let's talk about uh, this idea of failing moms. You know, when I first saw the book, I'm like, what does that mean? Uh, and the first chapter is, is, is called All Moms Are Bad Moms. Uh, and you, you know, and you talk about how no mother can actually do it right uh, in what you call an ideology of intense motherhood. So can you expand, explain a little bit about how it is, how no mom can do right uh, right now and, and, and how we got to this place? Yes. So I did um, indeed want us to all see ourselves in this bad mother position. Um, and it just when I looked at not just scholarly literature, but things in the news or um, works by by mothers um, where they've written books about their experience, everybody's talking about failing, about not doing enough, about never feeling like they're good enough or they could do everything they're supposed to do for their children. And it starts, I know I remember myself when um, I was pregnant the very first time and reading one of those pregnancy books and Partway through my pregnancy, I added up everything they wanted you to eat in terms of, um, you know, this much protein and this much calcium and this much vitamin A. And, and, I, and I just finally sat back and I thought, this isn't possible. This would be like 3,000 calories and I do nothing but eat all day. And yet they also don't want me to eat 3,000. It's just not doable. And so it, it starts there. And part of my book does talk about pregnancy, but beyond into parenting. Um, and there's a lot of reasons that the expectations for mothers have grown so dramatically in the past several decades. Um, so first of all, we're having fewer children. And so we're putting all our hopes, dreams, expectations, more and more families or parents are putting them on one or two children, not four or five, six children. Um, that's certainly a piece of it. Um, another piece is fears around children. And we are not very good at looking at statistics and using them to evaluate risk. 
And instead, um, we are very swayed by how often we've heard something or how dramatic it was. And so people are absolutely convinced that there's a white van sitting around every corner waiting to kidnap your child at almost every moment. And yet that statistically, the stranger kidnappings aren't really more prevalent now than they were in the past when kids were allowed to walk to the store or walk to the park alone. Um, But probably social media, having phones in our hands constantly, getting those alerts, um, they, they make people think that kids are more likely to be harmed by strangers um, and that parents now, maybe you even can't let your kids play in your own backyard. You have to stand out there with them. And maybe even checking through the window periodically isn't good enough anymore. Um, So that's playing into it. Also playing into it is, and and this is where we get, which, which is another issue in my book, is I'm trying to talk about all mothers from all walks of life And certainly, as you said in your um, introduction to my book, that some mothers are at more risk and are surveilled more um, and are more aware um, because maybe they're a person with a disability or they're someone who had their child very young or certainly a trans man, as we mentioned, right? They're going to face, they know they're more likely to face negative interactions in medical settings or with police or teachers in school, other authority figures. Um, But even for middle-class women, because of these rising expectations that you should always put your child first, you should spend all your money, all your emotional effort, everything poured into this child or two children, if you have two um, or however many, um, that Part of it is the expectation and everybody around you is doing that. So if you don't stay for the play date or the birthday party, or if you don't enroll your very small child in that activity and take them to it every week and stand there on the side while they, you know, start dance lessons or the musical instrument or the sport in elementary school, that your kid's going to fall behind other kids and then the dreaded they won't get into college. How will they buy a house in this economy someday, right? And you have to set them up. And so part of this is about some of the structural issues around our, you know, middle class, um, maybe dwindling, it becoming harder for younger generations with the cost of college, daycare, buying a home. And so even, even middle class and even parents with a lot of money feeling very stressed out that if their kid doesn't have every internship or learn another language or they won't be set up well enough to maintain their parents' kind of style of living. And so you have to give it your all and beyond starting when your children are really little already worrying about college. Um, and so I think this is part of at least the the discourse of failing for um, people who are um, more comfortable economically is still this driving fear that they're not doing enough to give their kid that leg up that they will need in the future. Uh, when I was reading your book, I took uh, photographs of a couple of paragraphs and sent them off to one group of young than I am women who are all having their first children and I'm somehow included in their little group. And also some uh, women my age who, whose children are now in their 20s. And one uh, quote, this is from Sherry Thur, that, that uh, really struck me was this uh, quote, good mothering, history reminds us, is a cultural invention, something that is man-made, not 
a lawful force force of nature. And and I I and I think that that also the the term man made is really interesting too. Although it's also made by everybody <laughs> that this idea that things have changed that. My mother in the 70s like, sat us in a car and just said, I'm going to be right back. I'm picking this up. And for us to be left in the car for 10 minutes was not an illegal act and didn't lead to people you know, questioning her to be a bad mother. And you're really trying to sort of show that there's been a shift. And, and you emphasize the, the kind of investment in the mother-child bond and how much we are asking in this kind of more meta way for mothers to be self-sacrificing and giving of everything as they you know do all of these things. One of the things I loved about this book is that you actually don't start with pregnancy. You start with what you call preconception discrimination, which I loved the term. And and you look at the differences for people before actual parenthood um, begins. And, and, and you say this is a very different climate for people prior to conception. So talk to us a little bit about, about what that is, about how people face very different expectations, even when they don't have a child and they're not even pregnant. Okay. So I um, had seen wonderful work by other people, um, much of it on pregnancy itself. And so there's there's great work out there by scholars like Michelle Goodwin, uh, Policing the Womb, and, and Jean Flavin, and many other people. There had traditionally been less about before people are even pregnant. Um, Miranda Wagner wrote a book, The Zero Trimester. Um, and so she was kind of one of the first, but also... In the, in the chapter on pre-pregnancy, when I'm starting to talk about how there's these double standards before somebody's even pregnant or maybe even thinking about pregnancy, is the dearth of work around men's reproduction, which again goes to my underlying argument that if we actually cared about fetuses, babies, children, we would absolutely care about men's reproductive health. And yet we don't. Right. We put other there's other societal forces, driving forces that are much more concerned. Um, and so we dump all this stuff on women, get healthy before you even want to get pregnant or don't drink any alcohol, even if you're not trying to conceive, if you're not taking birth control. Um, and so we put all these things on the shoulders of women. And yet there is um, scientific evidence about all kinds of things, how men are part of reproduction and how babies get here. Um, and so their age, their exposure to toxins in their environment. Um, there was some early work on this by Cynthia Daniels, um, who wrote Exposing Men. And more recently, people like Renee Almeling have written a book called Gynecology with a um, G-U-Y gynecology, um, talking about how we ignore men's reproductive health. And on one hand, that's, that's both a blessing and a curse, right? Because men aren't policed the way that women are policed for their behaviors, uh, such as drinking alcohol. But at the same time, men aren't informed either that maybe they work in a job with certain kinds of chemicals, and that's why their wife or partner is having miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And that couple's not putting two and two together 
because that's not floating around in society the way that reproductive risks or supposed risks to women are floating around. Um, so it absolutely does start preconception. Um, and also even one of the other things I talk about in that, that preconception discrimination chapter is also even about egg and sperm donors and how this really sends messages about how we expect men to relate to reproduction versus how women should relate to reproduction and what's a mother or father and how we fall into these pseudoscientific sort of gendering sperm and eggs even though they're just cells and gametes and <laughs> it's not little men and little women running around, but we see them like that. Um, so some of the dif differential treatment between egg and sperm donors also shows us. Um, and yet again, the, the people in the fertility clinics know about men's reproductive health and they're very worried about has a man um, fought overseas in a war? Was he exposed to burn pits, right? D you know, he's not going to be a good donor. Prospective parents who are in the know aren't going to want that sperm. Um, but are soldiers themselves being told that, right? Um, so absolutely. Um, and, and part of one of my goals in this book was to bring some of this excellent literature um, together because there are works that are on either pregnancy, right? or pre-pregnancy, a few, fewer. Um, but I wanted to have the bird's eye view, the overall of, hey, when we put pre-pregnancy plus pregnancy plus parenting plus, okay, let's look at some of the absolute worst case scenarios. And um, by the time I get to the end of the book, some pretty grim stuff about abuse and um, real harms to children. Um, because much of the book is about things that aren't really harming children, but there is a chapter on where children really do get harmed. Um, and so to pull that all together to make this argument about mothering versus fathering and rising expectations, and again, how much of it isn't about preventing harm, it's about controlling women or female-bodied people. One of the things that's so impressive about that part of the book is how, you know, on the one hand, you're saying, look, women are hurt, surveilled, uh, controlled by an assumption that they're in a pre-pregnant state at all times, so they should just be prepared to be pregnant, but also how men are hurt by not being treated as people who will be parents. And so one of the, the sort of themes that comes throughout the book is that all people whatever they identify with, whatever society codes them as, who want to be parents need to have this information and understand this about their bodies. And, and so it, it's, it's not that women, because they're associated with uh, children, are always harmed. It's, it's that men are harmed by not being thought of as part of that process. I thought that was just incredible. Um, the next chapter looks at how the creation of the, of the fetus as a legal person in American law has led to um, prosecutions of pregnant women for, for a variety of uh, uh, behaviors such as taking drugs, whether it's prescription drugs or illicit drugs, uh, for refusing cesarean sections is one of the um, examples that you give. You know, how have these expanded since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Dobbs? Um, and 
And what kind of data are people using to to make these kind of new criminalizations? Like, so in other words, what does what does this look like? What what have we how how have we gone from one legal regime to this new one? Okay, and I I, I do want to throw in there that some of the early evolution of these court cases when we look back, could have been designed to help women. And then it went horribly wrong. And now it is being used in all of these ways um, that were often not the way laws were written or the intention behind them. And prosecutors can get very creative (laughs) with how they use certain laws. Um, But it used to be historically in the U.S. that if a woman were harmed by somebody else while pregnant and she lost her pregnancy, there was nothing, there was no recourse for her. There were no criminal charges for the person who did it other than injuries to that person. So if she were trampled or an accident or someone attacked her and she broke a rib, she could maybe sue for her broken rib, but she couldn't do anything about the loss of her pregnancy. And so that little by little got changed in in part going after doctors who maybe had done things wrong during a birth. And little by little, that changed where you did give this fetus some standing as an additional entity who then, if, say, the mother and the fetus had been killed eventually by like a drunk driver or something, it was two deaths instead of one. And you, you could pursue charges for two two people. But that gave the fetus standing, which prior to that, a fetus really hadn't had. Other, Really, the only exception had been in that they could inherit if they were already conceived or they, if a parent died, they could inherit from the family. And that was about it for fetuses in, in the courts for a long time. So in some ways, this seemed like it was helping women if she'd lost a wanted pregnancy, um, right? She could go to court against the drunk driver or whomever. But these laws then started getting used against women. Um, and so we, we think a lot about the drug cases, which, of course, I have to point out, there were real disparities, especially at first, in terms of what women we went after for using drugs. And so a lot of the prescription drugs initially slipped by, um, but drugs that were street drugs often used, um, or at least the women we targeted for using them, tended to be women of color, even though they didn't use at higher rates than white women, but they were targeted for criminalization. So they would be caught up through hospitals where medical workers turned them in. um, At higher higher rates. Sorry. Much higher rates. rates. So so these are drugs that are used by all people, but they are criminally found Uh, depending on their identity, predominantly people of color. Yes. Um, And so initially they're going after especially black women. For example, they'll go to a public hospital and they'll target black women. And you'll see there'll be 30 cases and only one white woman, even though white women are using that public health hospital as well. But but they're not charged for the same thing. Um, And this is, as Michelle Goodwin says, canaries in the coal mine, 
right? Once you open the door to this or you think, oh, it's poor women or some other category of women who aren't like me, (laughs) but then it spreads and it snowballs and it becomes everybody. So one, there's the inherent just injustice of this period. And also what are we trying to accomplish? Because we know and gynecologists, OBGYN, you know, obstetricians, pediatricians, um, all have said not to criminalize drugs during pregnancy because the only thing you accomplish by doing that is driving pregnant women away from medical care. And so some of the potential babies you're the most worried about, now women are giving birth at home because they're terrified of coming in a hospital, having their urine or blood drawn, having their child taken away, maybe going to jail. Um, and so you're certainly not helping that fetus or, or baby by prosecuting her, or by trying to um, put her in prison. Um, but little by little, these laws expanded and expanded. Um, so we have situations where drug laws that were written to make sure children weren't in or around methamphetamine labs then somehow get flipped around so that a woman using methamphetamine while she's pregnant is prosecuted under the same law as if you'd brought children into a meth lab that could have exploded. And so the laws weren't even intentionally written this way. Um, Some of the drug charges that they used early on were about um, providing drugs to a minor through the umbilical cord in the 20 seconds between birth and when the umbilical cord was cut so that you could have that baby be a separate baby and and a child and a minor and fall under these laws that weren't written for these situations at all. And then with opioids and just some of the explosions in using prescription drugs illicitly, illicitly, um, they have caught up more and more white women, still more likely to be poor, Although not always. One of the problems, of course, is in the criminal justice system, if you go in without many resources, who's your lawyer going to be, public defender, et cetera, versus someone who can hire a private attorney. Um, So sometimes we're still seeing a correlation with socioeconomic class, but more and more white women getting caught up in these drug laws as well, and then expanding even to things like drugs prescribed by your doctor that you took for that reason, and then finding yourself um, with a prosecutor who's going to charge you for medical fraud because you didn't tell your, your, your physician that in the interim before you refilled the drug for your back pain that you became pregnant. Um, and so now trying to charge you with something else, take your children away and also potentially ten- send you to jail. Um, and so these things, um, anything where a woman might be seen as hurting her own fetus, including this crazy Alabama case where a woman was shot by another person and lost, lost her fetus, and then they tried to prosecute her initially, Um, So that's what I mean by this expansion, these things we couldn't even conceive of, like a woman being shot by someone else and the prosecutors are going after her for harming her own baby um, now that it's a second individual. And so, of course, this is playing into abortion laws and this idea of self-sacrifice, right, that a mother should do anything, perhaps even like in Texas or Idaho or die unnecessarily to show she's a good mom. 
which is why we all fail at this. Yes. No. And I mean, you even take it down to the driving up to get a cup of coffee and being denied coffee because the person serving it sees that you're visibly pregnant and makes a judgment that this would be bad for the fetus and therefore another smaller way of removing autonomy from women. I mean, throughout the book, you are, you are giving these examples that are really, uh, uh, you know, data rich and back. And, and you're also trying to say that don't look at this one discrete case. Like we may not think we're going to be in a shooting tomorrow and we would be charged with the murder of our baby. But all of us, all parents, not just mothers, all people who are parents and who live in the society are participating in this wider network of ideas that is thinking about the fetus, the pregnant person in, in, in ways that are not focused on the health of the fetus as much as they seem to be on the removal of the autonomy from women, if I'm understanding mm-hmm. um, correctly. And this brings you to this idea of the neglectful mother. And, and you look at these court cases in which mothers are arrested for sending kids to the park alone or uh, you know, leaving them in the car to run an errand, as I admitted earlier that my mother did all of the time in the late 70s. And, and here, it, you also emphasize that there are real differences between middle-class women and women with fewer resources. And you talk about the extent to which Black and Native American women are especially likely to be reported to child welfare services. So say a little bit more about this notion of neglectful mothers and, and where we are now. Obviously, in 75, my mother was was put on a pedestal as a stay-at-home mother who was the president of the PTA, and we were. Cons- it was supposed to be a good thing to have give your kids independence and send them to the park alone. Now it's not. So, tell me a little bit more about this chapter on neglectful mothers and you know, why it was so important to you. My mother did it too. Um, my parents, I think we'd taken a, a trip across the country. So we weren't even in our home state and they the, left me to get groceries in the car probably in the 80s. Um, and it was still acceptable. They certainly weren't worried about being arrested or having me taken away from them. Um, but that has absolutely changed. It varies by state, which is another thing that makes it very confusing because something could be legal or an age at which you leave your child home alone, say it could be legal in one U.S. state and not in another. And people often aren't aware of these laws. They think that they can make a judgment call about their own child. Um, But if somebody's watching or something happens, um, they could get in trouble without realizing it, which is another kind of theme in my book about just a wake-up call, like, look around at what's happening. We don't think we're going to get shot and charged for it, but these things are ballooning and it's happening to people, their sisters, their cousins, their daughters, their... um, And and not to interrupt you, and this is after your book went to print maybe, but the fact of the way that Texas implements law of making individuals, the people who can call in and say, well, that person drove that person to an abortion clinic and therefore that they are liable, means that you're asking all people to surveil each other on the topic of abortion. And 
if you extrapolate it to the issues that you're talking about here, you're then asking them to also be able to say, that parent doesn't feed their child well enough. That parent did is neglectful in some way. And I had it happen myself. I wrote about it in the book. I let my son go to the park on a warm, sunny April day. He'd beg me to go to the park. I helped him cross the street. I could look at him out the window. I told him I'd be back in 45 minutes to an hour. Don't cross the street without me. And he was brought back by police because some parent was concerned and and called police without thinking through the potential ramifications, which I was divorced at the time. So it was extra terrifying. I was worried about how my son was going to process this and how upset he would be. But I was also worried, what if my ex-husband, you know, how is he going to use this against me? Um, So absolutely, just the, you know, nice other parents in the park who um, turn you in. Um, And so there are are, as, as you asked in the question about social class, there are t- kind of two categories in these neglect cases. So there are people like Kim Brooks who wrote um, an autobiographical book about leaving her child a few minutes in a car when she went in to make a return and then how she got tangled up with the law and how even middle-class parents often won't fight it. They will take the parenting class or the community service or whatever sort of minor thing they're given because it's their kid at stake. And who wants to risk custody of their child? So even if you know you weren't wrong, if you know your child wasn't in danger or you know you still might not try to fight it. Um, so and, and the gendered part of this too that a man who leaves his kid in the minivan watching a video for three or four minutes to go get his coffee and come right back is far less likely to find himself charged, turned in, charged by police officers, than the prosecutor moving forward with it, et cetera, et cetera, uh, than a woman who does the exact same behavior. Um, but then there are women who have no child care, who are des- in, in really difficult circumstances, like trying to, many of these have been job interviews where a woman needs a job and has no child care. And so she puts her children in the food court at the mall, fairly close to where she's interviewing, but she can't be. Um... So it might happen that a, um, a woman who needs a job, right, might bring her children into the food court of the mall. She's interviewing not very far away, um, but can't exactly see them. And then she's reported. And so even though she just got that job, now her children are being taken away from her um, or she's left them in a car to do a job interview or to pick up forms for unemployment or for a job. Right. She's run into, you know, the administration stood in the line, come back. 15, 20 minutes later, and then found that her children are being removed. Um, There's a very famous case about a woman who went to work at McDonald's, and she left her daughter in um, a park. And these have to be difficult decisions. This woman um, had decided not to leave her child at home because she'd actually had a break-in in her home. So she didn't want her child home alone. And then making her child sit in McDonald's all day on a sunny day in the summer when she could be with friends and playing at the park. Um, And how is she supposed to afford her money from McDonald's, working at McDonald's? How is she going to afford a summer program where her 
I think nine-year-old or 10-year-old mm -hmm. is in a program all day while she's working. Um, and so there are women who are sort of doing this accidentally because they don't know they're breaking the law or they don't think they're going to get in trouble for it. And then there's women who really don't have many options and are in a bad situation and try to do the best that they can in that moment um, or given the situation. Um, and then, of course, if if even middle class women are saying, OK, I'm guilty, just I'll take the lowest penalty, but I'll say I'm guilty, just give me my kids back. Then what happens to the woman who can't afford much legal support or her own lawyer or in these cases? Um, you alluded to Chapter five already. It is by far the hardest chapter for the, this reader anyway, as it focuses on parents of children who are killed or abused. And here, you're looking at how both parents are treated and you find great disparities and a double standard that you say affects all women, not those, just those who are charged with a, a crime. Uh, you say that, you know, fathers are almost never tried under failure to protect. So uh, if abuse happens in the home, if uh, w the most horrible uh, of the killing of a child happens, it isn't just the parent who harmed the child. There's a second accusation in terms of failure to protect where you see that men will not be charged when their wives have killed a child, but mothers will be charged uh, with failure to protect when it is that their the father has done that and and you also are seeing the effects of the end of Roe v Wade here as well anyway tell me a little bit about this really hard chapter which i again i thought was really important but 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 hard to read it was the hardest to write by far it was it was very hard writing this chapter but at the same time it was learning. This was one of these new things that I learned where I went, I have to write this book. I ha We can't just stop at pregnancy prosecutions or we need the bigger picture was seeing these failure to protect um, laws being enacted and used in such a gendered way against women um, and almost never against men who, as you said, their wives. So it could be the stepmother or mother, right, of the child. It could be this man's girlfriend. Um, if she does the abuse or the murder, he's often seen, the father is seen as another victim. He lost his child. Oh, poor guy, right? Instead of prosecuting. And yet mothers, when this happens, um, are much more likely to find themselves in trouble with the law. If, if, someone killed her child, um, she may get the same amount of time in prison when she's charged with failure to protect as the man who murdered her child. And if the child isn't killed but is injured, we have seen women go to jail for longer and substantially longer than the man who harmed the child. So there, there was a case, for instance, where a, a woman... Um, was actually out with her father looking for a new apartment to try to leave her boyfriend, who was abusive toward her, but as she says, had never been abusive toward the children before. And he injured their daughter, her youngest child, who was a baby, broke some of her bones. Thankfully, the child survived. Um, but he ended up serving two years in jail 
she got a 30-year sentence for failure to protect, even though she was not home when this occurred, and even though she said there'd been no prior abuse and there was no evidence of prior abuse of the children. And she was trying to leave this situation for herself and her kids. Um, she was sentenced to 30 years, and the governor let her out after 15. So she served 15, and the man who actually in physically injured this child served two years. Um, so these are so profoundly unjust, unjust, and they also ignore a lot of the dynamics of abuse, where we use this sort of reasonable person standard, and then people are judging this who've had no experience with interpersonal violence, living with domestic violence. And so we don't always see the dynamics there when we're judging her as well. Uh, no, and also it underlines one of the wider points in the book, which is if this is about children and the protecting of children, in this particular case, uh, a parent who had not abused their child was in prison and the child was without the parent. So it, the, 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 the harshness in that particular, which was very hard to read case, really does uh, bring us back to the very start of the book, of these assumptions, these created assumptions that we have about what it means to be a mother and what society will do when society finds against having been a bad, finding you as a bad, a failed, as you said in the title, a failed mom. Um, I said at the start that this is a really... Uh, fascinating and tough to read at times book, but that there was some hope. And, you know, you conclude that mothers are not supported in American society, that most women need to work. Uh, you know, they even have to do the second shift when there is a male partner and that COVID set back some of the gains that were made in that distribution of the home work that needs to be done. Um, but even with all of that, uh, you, 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 oh, and you also emphasize something else that I thought was fascinating, that social science research shows that time spent with children may not matter as much as people think. And so uh, it, with all of that, with the data that you have, with this work that you did, where does that leave you with what changes should be made so that children have a better uh, parenting situation and people have more autonomy, particularly people who identify as women? I do give some suggestions of how we can move forward. How can we make the future better for moms and families and kids? Because also when we go after moms, as you just alluded to, it ends up hurting the children, right? When children end up in foster care, um, that's often not a good solution. And particularly if she's really being criminalized for poverty um, and, and many of these neglect cases are poverty as opposed to really not taking care of the child where obviously the solution is that woman needs resources so that the plumbing can be fixed in her apartment, not take the children out of the apartment and leave her in the apartment with no plumbing, um, right? And you have um, this great term for it. Sorry to interrupt you. You, you, you talk about empowered mothering and you say, um, and this is, you take this from Andrea O'Reilly, but you say that you want to have moms with agency, authority, authenticity, autonomy, and advocacy 
activism so that you can kind of get out from under this. So like, don't deprive people of so many resources so that they will be able to do this really hard job. Right. If we love mothers and we want mothers to do a good job, we should be putting resources at their disposal, not making it harder and harder for them. And again, that doesn't help their children. So when we claim that it does, it's just, it's so easy to see through like the prosecute, right? If we cared about the children, when men, it's his girlfriend who does this, he'd be as likely to be criminalized. No, but it's not about that. Um, so for moving forward and possible solutions, um, some of them, we need to focus on real problems. And we often, it's like smoke and mirrors and we're throwing up things like uh, right where we started um early in this podcast, right, about, oh, trans kids, for example, or so we're, we're throwing out things that aren't issues that don't have this kind of magnitude. And then we're still not doing what we should be doing, for example, to work on maternal mortality. It is horrific, the United States, where we rank in terms of more maternal mortality and morbidity, um, and particularly for, for black women. Um, and for such a rich country with all the resources we have to see so many women die either in childbirth or postpartum in that first year, uh, it's really unconscionable. So making strides on real issues, like making sure mothers and babies survive childbirth in that first year, um, that, that we can put money and resources toward and education and um, programs like doulas and making sure there's ongoing medical support for people um, who may have fewer resources and get bumped around and um, things that would really help that. So first of all, we have to look at what are the real problems and not be distracted by these sort of pseudo problems. Um, we also, for women who really are in trouble, and, and I really want to drive this point home, when we go after the most vulnerable, it's easy to go after people who are already in that position and struggling. And it's not fair and it's not right. And we need to deal with it because it's not just and it's not right and it's not helping them or their kids. But also, and this was my point about we're all bad moms, is it spreads. It just spreads back to that canaries in the coal mine, right? It just, it spreads from there. So if we let some women get targeted and criminalized when they shouldn't be, then that that ball just keeps on going um, to all of us. But if if our goal is really helping children and families and people thrive and do better, then we need programs where pregnant people can get help with drug issues, substance abuse issues. And yet we don't really have that. Most clinics will turn away a pregnant woman. They don't want the liability. There are wait times. She may have other children at home. She can't abandon her other children to go to an inpatient clinic. So you would need a clinic that she could bring her children to. Um, Putting her in jail is not the solution. She's going to lose her job. She's going to lose her housing. So if she ever um, gets better with her substance issue, but now her credit's wrecked, she can't get her kids back because she can't get an apartment to house them in. We have not helped the situation. Um, likewise, with people who are suffering from domestic violence, um, recriminalizing them, making them responsible for the actions of people who hurt them. Um, one of one of the things I learned during research for this book is women can lose their children because they're held at fault for letting the child see them be abused. 
instead of the person who abused her suffers the consequences like parenting classes, et cetera, she may now be in trouble. And um, that's that's to re-victimize her instead of empowering her and supporting her. Um, so for those who need the most help, who are the most vulnerable, we need to actually offer real assistance with things that are empirically, we know they work or good programs as opposed to punishing. Um, we need less judgment in general of moms. And, and we have to start, if you are a mother yourself or close to one, right, start at home and think through how, how crazy the level of expectations is, um, but for others too. We need to stop judging. Um, we need to give people a break. We do need to understand that good enough parenting is fine for most kids. And the, the level that we've raised it to is in some ways ridiculous and unattainable. And, and kids don't really need everything that we seem to think they, they need to be safe and to do well. We do need to involve other people in their caretaking. Um, which means not just fathers if there is one or another family member, but it also means paid caregivers. And that means subsidizing those people. If we really value children and families in a capitalist society, we got to put our money where our mouth is. We do not have paid leave as a federal policy. And we are such an outlier among other nations to not have paid leave. Um, I don't I don't understand how we can say we care about kids and families and not have a paid leave policy. So a lot of this is also about better social policies, the tax credits for children that we've seen can bring families and kids out of poverty. Why wouldn't we want that? If we want, if, if the goal is really children's well-being, there are policies we see that work. Um, so things like subsidizing childcare or, um, expanding tax credits to parents. Um, these are things that really do empower mothers that help children. Um, and we know that they can work. But overall, it's kind of this idea of collective responsibility because everybody's struggling with what's my daycare situation going to be? Am I going to have grandma do two days a week and pay a babysitter one day and do daycare from... 12 to 5 every day, and then, then your sister's struggling with the problem and your neighbor's struggling with the problem. This is a collective societal issue that needs to be solved at a structural level instead of dumping it all on individuals. Um, and we can't ask moms to shoulder all this burden and to stand in for fixing social problems and making everything perfect for everybody, which is part of why we go after them when we fail, is we expect them to do that role for society. No, uh, so beautifully summarized. It's a great conclusion. Sometimes books run out of steam at the end. Yours does not. Lots comes together at the end. And what you show as a good sociologist, uh, this has social issues. This has to do with culture and what we expect. This also has to do with law what we write in the law, how it is we arrest people who we arrest, the extent to which that is actually done in some sort of um, fair manner, and also how it is, so how we police, and then what we do and who we punish in a courtroom, and whether these punishments are the same for all of the different people who come before these. And last, as you're emphasizing here the most, policy. 
Governments, local, state, and national can all make changes to provide these resources as opposed to asking people to buy a book and become the perfect mother and consume the 4,000 calories that you totaled up in your own experience. Um, This is a really accessible book that is uh, full of reference to amazing literature. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I, I hate the literature review, but what you accomplish the literature review in a, in a great way. You credit many, many people who you are building on. And I'll have in the show notes some links to many of the books and writers that uh, you've mentioned during the podcast. We've interviewed some of them on New Books Network. Uh, so this is this is readable for anybody. This is written in an accessible, non-jargoned language. It's packed with the research of yourself and others. And I'm I'm just so happy that you were able to take the time to um, join us on New Books and Political Science. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs>